This is Kick-Ass News. I'm Ben Mathis. Hi, I'm Ben Mathis. Welcome to Kick-Ass News. It's been more than a year since Donald Trump ran the most improbable presidential campaign in American history and won. But even today, political analysts, pundits, and historians are still trying to make heads or tails of the 2016 election and the victory that no one saw coming. Now for the first time comes the inside story of how it all happened, written by the guys in the room, two of Trump's closest campaign advisors, the fiery and at times controversial Corey Lewandowski, who served as campaign manager to Donald Trump, and David Bossie, who was deputy campaign manager and later deputy executive director of Trump's presidential transition team. In their new book, titled Let Trump Be Trump, The Inside Story of His Rise to the Presidency, Corey and Dave give a moment-by-moment eyewitness account of the stories behind the headlines. From the Access Hollywood recording and the palace intrigues of Paul Manafort, Steve Bannon, and Ryan's Priebus, to the last-moment comeback and a victory that rocked the political world. Today they join me on the podcast to talk about the man they still call the boss, his seemingly limitless energy, and his obsession with leaks and loyalty. They discuss some of the tense moments on the campaign, including the announcement speech where Trump went off script to suggest that many illegal immigrants are rapists and murderers, the attack on Senator John McCain's military service record that Corey says nearly ended Trump's candidacy, and the make-or-break meeting of the campaign's inner circle after the infamous Billy Bush tapes surfaced. Corey talks frankly about his falling out with the Trump kids and his opinion of Paul Manafort, and they settle once and for all whether the Russia investigation's George Papadopoulos was a campaign insider or a coffee boy. Coming up with David Bossy and Corey Lewandowski in just a moment. Lewandowski worked for 18 months as the campaign manager on the 2016 presidential campaign of Donald Trump. He was brought on board by David Bossie, the deputy campaign manager, who later served as deputy executive director of the presidential transition team for Donald Trump. Together, David Bossie and Corey Lewandowski have written about that wild ride in a new book titled Let Trump Be Trump, the inside story of his rise to the presidency. Guys, thanks for joining me on the podcast. Thanks for having us. Our pleasure. Well, the title says it all, Let Trump Be Trump. I think, Corey, you even kept that mantra up on a whiteboard in the campaign headquarters. How long did it take for you and Dave, both experienced political strategists, to reach the conclusion that Donald Trump was not the kind of candidate you could manage in the traditional way? When did you realize that you had to just let Trump be Trump, as you say? Well, we looked at uh, coming on board to the Trump campaign, understanding the success that Mr. Trump had already had in his life, whether as a real estate developer in New York, an author, or a television personality. I don't ever think that we thought it was our job to try and change him to make him into somebody he wasn't. So let Trump be Trump was the mantra of the campaign from very early on because he has achieved such remarkable success that if we let him be himself, we knew he could achieve that same type of success in the world of politics. 
I'd be interested to hear about your first meetings with Donald Trump. What was that interview process? Is it anything like The Apprentice? No, 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 no. First of all, um, you know, I met um, I met Mr. Trump in 2010, uh, and uh, I introduced him to Corey in 2008, on April 12, 2014. So I'd known him for many years, um, and we got introduced by Steve Wynn, who is another friend of mine, and and Mr. Trump's. And we were, I was raising money for Children's Hospital. My son had had four brain surgeries and two open heart surgeries, and was. Uh, uh, I was raising money for Children's Hospital here in Washington, D.C., so other children and other families could have unbelievable health care like my son received. And so Steve Wynn was helping me, and he said, and, and Mr. Trump pr- purchased the uh, location where I was holding my, my uh, uh, golf tournament. So Mr. Wynn introduced me to him and said, hey, you, you might, he might help you with Children's Hospital, and that's what he did. He, without any no politics involved without any fanfare or press. I got to know Mr. Trump, and uh, he helped me with my children's hospital golf tournament for many years. I don't even play golf, but I do one to help raise money. And he is uh, an, an, so part of the book, Let Trump Be Trump, is the personal side, the warm and unbelievably generous side of Donald Trump, somebody that the American people don't get to see because the mainstream media just continues to attack him, assault him with fake news every minute of every day. So we have to uh, combat that. But it, it, that's how we that's how I got to know uh, Donald Trump. And, and I when Mr. Trump asked me for a recommendation for a campaign manager, I had known Corey and I thought of Corey and I said, you know, this is a good match because Corey's personality and uh, professionalism is going to really be a great compliment to Mr. Trump, and, and, and it seems to work out. And, Corey, I think I recall you saying that in your meeting with Donald Trump, or the boss, as you call him, he asked you what kind of odds he had of actually winning the election. What did you give him? You know, I had the privilege of going to seek then Mr. Trump in early December, I'm sorry, early January of 2015, and he asked me, what do you think the odds of me running and winning are? And I said, I think they're 5%. And he responded, he thought they were 10%, and then we compromised at 7.5%. Because, (laughs) you know, back in January of 2015, the political field was just being assembled, and it was some of the greatest Republican Party operatives and politicians that the country had to offer, governors and senators and business executives and and leaders from around the country and former uh, brothers of presidents. And so many, many people never thought that Donald Trump was truly going to run. And what he and I discussed that day in January of 2015 was, what is the path to go forward? What are the three states that we need to compete in? And what we write about in the book is Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina. If we make it through those first three, that will be a good test of where people think you are because they're all very different. They're geographically different. They're electorally very different. And what we saw was uh, this candidate won 38 primaries and caucuses and got more votes than any candidate in the history of the Republican Party, including Eisenhower, who won World War II. Yeah, and once Trump cleared those three early primary states, it seems that there was just no slowing him down after that. But I want to rewind back a few months to the day that Donald Trump announced his candidacy after that memorable entrance down the escalators at Trump Tower. 
you say that you had written a more traditional announcement speech for Trump, which he approved and you shared with some of the press ahead of the formal announcement. But after he approved the speech, you say that was the last time Trump actually glanced at it. As would become his signature style, he ended up speaking off the cuff, most notably saying that Mexico is sending us their rapists and murderers. Was that line in the original speech as written or was that all Donald Trump? So, yeah, I mean, look, the the difference with candidate Trump and at the time I was still trying to fully understand he has had his finger on the pulse of the American people for 30 years. But as a political operative, I spent multiple days writing what I thought to be a good succinct speech that was about seven minutes long that I was going to share with Mr. Trump that he could give for his remarks and that we would disseminate to the media. And he thanked me for my time writing that speech, put it in his pocket, and then went on his way to talk. And really, uh, what many people don't remember is when he made that speech on June 16th of 2015, there was no fanfare. There was no uproar over his speech. There was no chaos. The world did not come to an end. But what happened two days later was a madman walked into a church in South Carolina, opened fire and killed a number of people. And Hillary Clinton turned around and blamed candidate Trump for that. And it was one of the most disgusting things that happened in the campaign. And then the media uproar of what his speech was from days before. But the bottom line was there was a sick, deranged individual who walked into that church in South Carolina. And Hillary Clinton thought she was damaging Donald Trump by blaming him. But what happened was it only uh, increased his resolve and reminded the people of America that Donald Trump had nothing to do with that, and Hillary was trying to do this for political gain. And uh, then as, then and only then did the mainstream media go back and start dissecting his speech word for word. And his premature demise is a candidate, right, throughout the election, but somehow he seemed to be the candidate with nine lives. Another one of these early controversies that many in the media predicted would be the end of Trump was the speech when he disparaged Senator John McCain's service record in Vietnam. Corey, even you said you didn't feel good about that. At the time, did you think that he should have apologized for that remark? And did you think he was going to be able to survive that? Well, what we talk about in the book, Let Trump Be Trump, is, you know, I'm a typical political operative, and I mean that in the worst sense, because I don't understand how Donald Trump thinks at the time. And I'm trying to tell him, sir, you know, nobody says this stuff, and I think you should go down and hold a press conference. And he agreed, ultimately. He went down, he held a 28-minute long press conference, and he talked about the need to provide better care for our veterans, to establish a hotline so if they needed help, he would be there, to make sure that the veterans in the state of Arizona, and specifically at the Phoenix VA, didn't die waiting in line. And he raised that issue on the campaign and he touched on something nobody else had the guts or the nerve to touch on. And what we saw in the primaries and ultimately in the general election was those active duty military, those veterans, those first responders, those law enforcement officers turned out in droves to support this candidate because he touched on making sure that they had every tool necessary, both while they were in service and after they left the service, to have the best care necessary. Nobody else was doing that, but Donald Trump talked about it to get it done. When the McCain issue came up, I think you said that you predicted then and there that if he survived that controversy, he was going to be president. I, I did say that. You know, I, I, we were leaving Iowa that day. We got on the airplane, and I turned to one of the staffers, and I said, you know, I've never been through anything like this. I don't think anybody had. And the campaign was still relatively new. It was the first 30 days, and we were just about to hit number one for the first time in the campaign and never looked back. And I said, if Donald Trump survives this on Monday and we're still in this race— he will be the president of the United States. And uh, look, I think that was a little fortuitous, and I, you know, there were a lot of lucky breaks, but 
he's the hardest working individual I had ever seen in my life. He works 18 hours a day and wears out his staff that are 20, 30, 40 years younger than him because he never stops. And through his sheer will and tenacity, he outworked 16 Republican primary opponents. And through the schedule that Dave put together that we outlined in the book, Let Trump Be Trump, and the miles that we flew on that plane, 998,000 gallons of jet fuel, 45 states, 722 segments, 235 cities. Donald Trump was on every single one of them. He sheer outworked his opponent, and he buried Hillary Clinton with his work ethic. Well, yeah, since you brought it up, I want to talk about Trump's energy. His people always talk about how he never seems to slow down. He only sleeps a few hours a night, and yet he seems to have this endless reservoir of energy. In all the times that you guys were working on the campaign, traveling with him on Trump Force One, hitting event after event, did you ever see him fall asleep or even seem to wear down a little? Not even for a second. You know, I'm a lot younger than him. Corey's even younger uh, than I am. And he would uh, drive us both into the ground and, and, and staffers younger than us. So we were working as hard as we could, and we couldn't keep up with him. He was an amazing, uh, his stamina was like nothing we'd ever seen. We did four, five, six events a day, every day, for weeks leading up to the election, and he never stopped. And so we would we would uh, use all the time zones to our advantage to build a schedule. We would go a hip, you know, hopscotch across the country, multiple different states, and he would give an hour-long speech in each one of these because we tried to say to him, Mr. Trump, just give a shorter speech. Give a shorter speech. Give 30 minutes. And he said, you know, these people have been the American people who are supporting me and us have been waiting for hours and hours, some of them six and eight hours in snowstorms, in rain, in, in, in inclement weather of all sorts across the country. And they've been waiting to see me, and then I'm not going to shortchange them. So that's why he wanted to look his best, be his best at every rally. And so we, as the staff, tried to make that happen. And that's one of the reasons, that, you know, the, the mainstream media tries to make a lot out of his, you know, the diet that we had on the plane. We never sat down in a restaurant. We were on fast food. You know, the basic food groups at the campaign were McDonald's, Kentucky Fried Chicken, and pizza. And then, you know, Diet Cokes and Cokes. And that's really the extent of it. And we had an Oreo cookie or a vanilla finger here or there. But that was it. And we never stopped. We always were on the move. And the only reasons we were able to do that is because of the staff because mostly because of him and his leadership and his desire to outwork Hillary Clinton. I mean, I've been saying this. She couldn't fill a high school cafeteria, and he was putting 10, 15, 20,000 people in an arena five times a day. We're going to take a quick break, and then I'll be back with more with David Bossy and Corey Lewandowski when we come back in just a moment. Well, things started to get a little hot for you, Corey, in the spring of 2016. You got some unwanted attention over the alleged grabbing incident with a reporter from Breitbart. There were rumblings that the Trump children weren't happy with you. And in the book, you say that you always felt that Trump never forgave you for his loss in Iowa. But you really saw the handwriting on the wall when Paul Manafort came on board the campaign. There's certainly no love lost between you and Mr. Manafort. So let me ask you, Corey. Based on everything you saw and heard within this campaign, 
what was Paul Manafort in this for? Why was he there? Look, I think Paul Manafort, if you go back and look, uh, the last time he was involved in a substantial campaign in the United States was 1976, a fairly long time ago. Nobody had seen or heard of Paul Manafort in the United States for the last 30 or 40 years. And he was clearly trying to revive himself as a person who wanted to be more involved in the process and, you know, enrich himself. And I mean that in the worst possible sense, because he wasn't here for altruistic reasons. He actually has a home in Trump Tower. And we write about this. But for the first really 15 months that I'm running the campaign, Paul Manafort not never so much as makes a phone call or stops by the office in the same building to volunteer his wisdom. And it isn't until basically... Candidate Trump is now all but the Republican nominee where he decides to get himself involved. And, um, you know, there's a lot of animosity for a person who's supposed to be there for the candidate. And we find out it's really all about him. And at the time, was there any discussion or concerns within the campaign about his shady dealings in Ukraine? Well, look, I'd love to say that I had been briefed by the FBI or some other entity about Paul's past of stealing money and, you know, overseas accounts from other people, but I hadn't been. And I was, at that time, it was a very, very small operation. In in March of 2015, I bet you the campaign all in, including all the state staff, was no more than 40 people. And we were looking for help. And Dave kept telling me, Corey, you got to bring people in to help you. You got to bring, pre- you have to bring people in to help you. And... Paul's comparative advantage was that before the invention of the fax machine, he was involved in a contested Republican convention. It was Ronald Reagan versus um, Gerald Ford in 1976. And so the fact that there was a potentially a Republican contested convention because the way the delegates worked, we had to find the only guy still alive who'd ever done this. And he happened to be the only one still alive. And while we're on that, I also want to ask you about George Papadopoulos. There's been some debate over how big his role was within the campaign. His fiance says he was intimately involved in every aspect of the campaign, while others say that he was a glorified coffee boy. So let me ask you guys, did you interact with him very much? Was he part of the inner circle? No, I didn't. What was the guy's name? <laughs> George Papadopoulos? Yeah, he was as much part of the inner circle as you were. <laughs> yeah, so zero. <laughs> okay. There's a lot of people out there, which is pretty amazing to me, who claim that they were the first ones in the door, and I was there on day one. Uh, yeah, after Ted Cruz left the race, and Marco Rubio, and Jeb Bush, and John Kasich, they were right there behind Donald Trump after he became the Republican nominee. They were right there after yeah. he crushed Hillary Clinton. And- I can tell you, I never mm-hmm. heard of him, never saw him. Uh, he was a complete nobody to this campaign. Uh, from the time in mid-August to election day that I uh, ran it, and and uh, you know, it was one of them, the people that ran it, and and I never heard of them or saw them during the transition. Okay, all these people, uh, and I hear about it all the time. I was there on day one. They were not, uh, and mm-hmm. you know, everybody has this notion of revisionist history, which gives them a greater role in something that they really had nothing to do with. And I think this is one of those instances. I mentioned a moment ago the rumors that you were on the outs with the Trump children and Jared Kushner leading up to your exit, Corey. The impression in the media was that the kids wanted you gone because they thought that you were egging on Trump and feeding his worst instincts. I wonder, did you ever feel that the Trump family had your back? Well, look, I think it's fair to say that I did receive a lot of scrutiny for not being able to control candidate Donald Trump and what he says or does. Um, 
With hindsight as 2020, I think it's now fair to say the American people have understood that Donald Trump is his own man and he's going to control what he says. It's not never was and should not be my job or anyone else's job to prevent Donald Trump from saying what he wants to say. And looking back on it, uh, I think that was a unfair assessment of my skill set. I shouldn't have been held to something that uh, was realistically unattainable, but that was a knock on me that I couldn't control him. And now what we see is nobody can or should control him. He's the president and he's clearly done it his way. Let Trump be Trump has been a success. And how did you learn that you were let go from the campaign? I came in that Monday morning and found out I had a what we call the family meeting, which was the grown children and uh, son-in-law, Paul Manafort, Rick Gates, both under indictment, myself and a few other people uh, came to the meeting. And uh, I was asked to step out and have a conversation. And Don Jr. told me that the campaign was going to go in a different direction. And look, I had been there when I helmed the campaign winning 38 primaries and caucuses, and I wasn't really sure why, but they asked me to leave, and Paul was going to come on board. But let me just say, uh, from the time I left the campaign to the time that Paul was fired, it was eight weeks, the campaign went from a primary juggernaut defeating 16 Republican opponents to a dismal failure where he was probably down 20 or 25 points to Hillary Clinton, and the president, the candidate, understood he had to make a significant change, and he brought in Steve Bannon, Kellyanne Conway, and David Bossie to right the ship, to put it on the right track, and that is what helped propel him to victory in November against the Clinton campaign. And without those three individuals coming in, uh, I firmly believe if Paul Manafort would have stayed there, who, by the way, had never run a presidential campaign in his life, uh, Donald Trump would have lost that race because they wanted to, Paul Manafort and Rick Gates, both under indictment, wanted to make Donald Trump something that he wasn't. Well, guys, I have to ask about the Billy Bush tape. When that tape hit the news, Corey, you were already gone from the campaign working as a political commentator for CNN. But David, you were still on the campaign. You say that a lot of newcomers to the campaign, including Ryan's Priebus, almost immediately started running for the doors. But it all came to a head in this emergency meeting of the inner circle shortly after the tape emerged. Dave, you were in that meeting. What happened behind closed doors? Well, the Billy Bush uh, tape was dropped on us on a Friday late afternoon, early evening, uh, 48 hours before the second presidential debate in St. Louis. And we were in debate prep. There was a small team of us, uh, Ryan Priebus, Steve Bannon, Kellyanne Conway, myself, Rudy Giuliani, uh, Chris Christie, and uh, Ryan Priebus. Um, and and we we had to figure out what to say and how to say it, and we put out a statement, and then we did the videotape that evening on Friday night late. But then on Saturday mid-morning, we got together uh, in uh, in in the, the president's residence at the top of Trump Tower, and it was a tough meeting. It was going to be the, where are we going from here? And I was there, and the same people that I just discussed were there. And Reince, uh, Reince walked in and, and said, you know, you, you know, I've been hearing last night and this morning, I've been hearing uh, from all of the geniuses in the Republican Party, all of the uh, leaders in both the House and the Senate and uh, big donors from across the country, that you have two choices. You can either lose the big electoral, biggest electoral landslide in modern American history, or you can drop out and let Mike Pence be the nominee. Th- that That's what he said. Now, the reality is, is that you know, Ryan said what every look, Corey and I are 
political professionals. We have to think about every option, right, that is before us on at every turn. So when we did that, when, when Ryan said it, you know, all of us had thought of thought of that in one way or another, but he verbalized it, and it was a fairly dramatic thing to sit there and hear him say it. But the president looked at him and said, I'm going to win. I'm going to win. This is not, I am not dropping out because I'm going to win. And the real untold story is how Reince Priebus, from that moment on, uh, along with uh, the rest of our small team, put our shoulders to the to the grindstone, and Reince was able to get him ready, help him get ready. Nobody stepped on that debate stage but Donald Trump, but Reince really was the key leader for that second and then the third debate to help the president get ready. And it was a it was an amazing thing to be a part of. For sure, but it was also a very different campaign at that point with a lot of new faces, much higher stakes, big money being spent. I wonder, when you look at the early days, Trump seemed to be grinning ear to ear and having the time of his life. There was less pressure because no one thought he had a shot. He had a much smaller, more nimble team barnstorming the primary states and making it up as he went along. If you compare that Trump to the Trump in the general election with so much on his shoulders and so many people pulling him every which way, do you think he was still having as much fun? Well, we talk about this a lot in the book, Let Trump Be Trump. The early part of the campaign was special because it was a small, tight-knit group. Um, and what we talk about is Kellyanne Conway walks in to see Mr. Trump one day, and he says, I'm not having fun anymore. And she says, well, let's make it fun for you again. And with Steve Bannon and Kellyanne Conway and the co-author here with me, David Bossie, they made the campaign fun again because they understood fundamentally by letting Trump be Trump and not managing him the way that other people wanted to, he was going to have fun. Mr. Trump, President Trump, loves to go and speak to the American people. He is exceptional at it. Six rallies a day in four different time zones, you know, at an hour apiece is fun for him. He thrives off of that. That's the schedule that Dave Bossie built during the general election campaign. What we were doing during the primary campaign was giving him the opportunity to get his message out in Mobile, Alabama with 35,000 people, in Dallas, Texas with 20,000 people before a debate. It was fun because we understood where he excelled and he excelled excels in those large crowds. That's why he was successful at the end of the campaign. Dave Bossie's schedule, Kellyanne Conway, Steve Bannon, what they helped built for the end of that campaign. Donald Trump had fun, and I think winning on election night was a lot of fun. And a couple months later, once the president moved into the White House, you guys were invited for a meeting in the West Wing where you say Ryan's Priebus offered Corey the position of special advisor to the president. And Dave, he offered you the job of deputy chief of staff. But right after that, when you went in to meet with the president in the Oval Office, Trump said he had changed his mind and he didn't want you guys on the inside. What were his reasons for that? Did he tell you? Sure. Uh, You know, Corey and I are two, you know, just average blue-collar guys. You know, it's kind of funny, but we're from down the street from each other. Corey's from Lowell, Mass. I'm from a much poorer area in East Boston. Uh, and um, Corey hates to hear that, but I'm, I was a poor— I was <laughs> That's going to be tough because I was really poor. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So so, so we, we have—you uh, know, we, it is a—it um, uh, was an amazing experience, and— uh, uh, you know, I, I, I when 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 the president said to us, "I don't want you coming in here," 
he, he wasn't was doing us. it as a negative. He saw mm-hmm. two guys, I think, and Dave and Corey, who've been loyal, who've been there from day one, who fight for him every day on television. And he was very clear. We talk about this in Let Trump Be Trump at the end of the book. He wasn't happy with the way the staff was functioning. And he said, if my staff doesn't do something different, because he was working his tail off. He had just come back from his first overseas trip. He said, I'm going to make a change. And I don't want you guys to be part of that change. So that loyalty that he gave to us that day, we write about it. The campaign was about his loyalty to the staff and the staff loyalty to him. So it was very humbling that he thought of us in a way to make sure that if a staff change was coming, Dave and I wouldn't have been part of that change. And I believe I recall you saying that during that meeting, Trump was sort of obsessed with leaks coming out of the White House at the time. And he even asked you guys who you thought the leaker was. He did. He sure did. He actually thought he knew. Oh, really? Who did he think it was? Well, we articulated in the book, you know, in Let Trump Be Trump, this guy has the best political instincts of anybody. And and look, he thought there were many leakers, not just one. But he identified Steve Bannon as one of the people that he thought was leaking. And as you were walking out of that meeting, you actually ran into Steve Bannon. What did he say to you when you told him you weren't going to be moving in? (laughs) Uh, I'll clean it up a little bit. But he basically said, uh, that's really unfortunate because you two are my ticket out of here. I was going to punch out when you two came in. So, you know, that was a fairly dramatic thing, and Reince was very disappointed. Reince tried to, you know, wrangle us back in over the next several days, but it just didn't work out. And and you know what? It turns out that six, eight weeks later, the president did make a change, and we saved ourselves, uh, you know, an enormous headache. From everything we're seeing, it seems that way. Well, before we go, you guys admit in the book that sometimes you're glad that you're on the outside and not in the pressure cooker that is the West Wing. But then again, sometimes you think you're just waiting for Trump to call you back in. Which one of those are you feeling today? Well, look, Dave is about to leave because he's going to the White House for the Christmas party. Uh, I'm going to go a little later tonight. So I think it's fair to say that um, Dave has four young children. I have four young children. Um, To work inside that White House is an amazing privilege. It is the Super Bowl for political consultants. But it is also an 18 to 20 hour, seven day a week, all consuming uh, obligation. And I and Dave have both been gone from our families for so long. It is selfish for us to go inside that building right now. We can be better advocates on the outside. Now, there may come a time where the president calls and says, Dave, Corey, I need you to be here. And if that time comes, I will tell you, I will serve my president in any capacity he asks me to. But I'm very grateful right now that he's given me and Dave the privilege of being on the outside, putting our families in order, making sure they are their priorities for us, and being able to see our children grow up because it is a very, very difficult, time-consuming obligation to go inside that building. No doubt about it. Well, once more, the book is called Let Trump Be Trump, the inside story of his rise to the presidency. Corey and Dave, thanks for talking with me. Thanks for having us. Our pleasure. Thanks again to Corey Lewandowski and David Bossy for coming on the podcast. Order their book, Let Trump Be Trump, on Amazon or download the audio version at audible.com. Follow them on Twitter at at C. Lewandowski and at David underscore Bossy. Today's episode was sponsored by Credible.com. Credible.com is an online marketplace for student loan refinancing. Using Credible.com's simple platform, It takes less than two minutes to find out if you're overpaying on your student loans. 
you could save thousands by refinancing. All you have to do is visit Credible.com slash kick, answer a few questions, and right away you'll get real rates, not ranges of rates, from multiple lenders. Checking your rates will not affect your credit score, so you really have nothing to lose. The average user who refinances through Credible.com saves almost $19,000 over the life of their loan. And for a limited time, my listeners will get a $200 welcome bonus when refinancing through Credible.com slash kick. That's Credible.com slash kick. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to Kick-Ass News on iTunes and leave us a review. You can follow us on Facebook or on Twitter at at KickAssNewsPod. And as always, I welcome your comments, questions, and ideas at comments at kickassnews.com. I'm Ben Mathis, and thanks for listening to Kick-Ass News. Kick-Ass News is a trademark of Mathis Entertainment, Inc.